You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with James Fletcher to talk all things related to portfolio management, emerging markets, ESG funds, and investing as a millennial. James is the founder of the Young Investor Society, a $1 billion portfolio manager at APG Asset Management, a chartered financial analyst, and is an expert in investing in emerging markets as well as small and mid sized companies. Let's get right into today's episode. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have James Fletcher. Welcome to the show, James. Thanks, Robert. It's uh, great to be on. Thanks for the honor to be on your podcast. And I love what you're doing for the millennial community and investing. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Before we dive into our conversation about millennials investing, managing a billion dollar portfolio, investing in emerging markets and high quality businesses with an emphasis on ESG, tell the audience a bit about you and your background. Yeah, so I grew up in uh, Northern Virginia, I'm right outside of Washington D.C. You know, I would say, I would say, to get into investing and to you know to be where I am now, managing a billion-dollar portfolio for APG Asset Management, really doing what I love, which is investing in stocks and great companies and taking a long-term approach to investing. You know, I, I think it revolved around my my three passions, which are you know numbers, people, and and developing countries. I've you know always loved numbers, always loved math. I still remember when I was nine years old. My grandpa is a uh, he was a scientist and worked at NASA, but his hobby on the side was to invest in stocks and manage his investment portfolio. and And he you know he would pull me on his lap and show me his portfolio and show me the Wall Street Journal and and ever since then I've just had this hunger and this love for the stock market and investing. I I read um, the essays of Warren Buffett when I was in high school and. I think with a lot of investors reading Graham and Buffett, that just kind of opened your eyes. And for me, it just turned my life upside down. It just made so much sense. It resonated. And I said, you know, I would, I would love to be able to emulate that. You know, the people side, I was a Mormon missionary in Brazil for two years and came away from that experience with a love for developing countries and different cultures and different people. So for me, coming back from that, getting into college was kind of the question of how do I combine numbers and the quantitative approach and investing with my love for people and cultures and emerging markets. And was lucky enough to land an internship at an investment fund in Boston, covering Latin American equities initially, and then and covering the global emerging markets and then working my way up to be a portfolio manager and now managing a billion-dollar investment fund. But for me, yeah, it's really been that combination of love of numbers, love of the analytical game, and combining that with love of people and love of cultures and love of international countries. So I know you also founded Young Investor Society. Why did you want to start that organization? Yeah, I mean... I guess it stems back to my early career is, you know, reading Warren Buffett in high school and kind of having that, you know, aha, eye-opening moment and having it lead to an incredibly fulfilling and exciting investment career for me, wanting to give that opportunity to to more kids. You know, but specifically what happened was I was volunteering at 
SIFMA does a high school investing program called the Stock Market Game. And, and actually, it's about how most of our audience has learned about the stock market is they do a three-month stock simulation. And um, I was a guest speaker. I was going into high schools and speaking to the kids that were doing the stock market game. I was living in Los Angeles at the time. And um, what I found is kids love stocks. It's exciting. It's competitive. They know the companies. But a short-term simulation game is rewarding taking as much risk as you possibly can. And so I would walk into the classes and the kids would say, you know, I'm investing in loss-making biotech companies and triple leverage ETFs and you know, basically taking as much beta as I possibly can to, to game the system over three months. And, and this is how we're teaching the majority of high school kids about investing. I would walk into that class and I would say, whoa, 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 guys, this is not investing. This is, you know, this is gambling. Tell me a company that you would want to be the owner of 10 years from now and why. And we would just have a great discussion about Apple or Facebook or Chipotle or Shake Shack or you know, whatever the business and what was the rationale that this would be a business you would want to be a long-term owner of. You know, It was coming kind of out of the global financial crisis and realizing that our investment industry had a bad reputation and for good reason. And we're teaching kids in high school that investing is gambling and taking as much risk as you possibly can. And so I received actually a letter from a, a young man named Edgar visiting his inner city Los Angeles school. And, and after one of these you know, great visits to his school, and he said, Mr. Fletcher, thank you so much for coming to my class. He said, no adult has ever come to my class before. And no adult has cared. And he said, your 45-minute visit has changed my life and it's given me something to strive for. That phrase, no adult has visited and no adult has cared, especially for you know inner city kids like Edgar, that was kind of my rallying cry. And I said, let's create a program that teaches the right principles to kids like Edgar and let's change the perception of our of our investment industry. Yeah, this was four and a half years ago. And we I went to someone from Harvard Business School and someone from Merrill Lynch and someone from Fidelity. I said, let's create the program that teaches long-term investing the right way. And that's how Young Investor Society started. And it started with six schools. And we, we worked on curriculum and lesson plans and had great support from universities around the country and, and investors. And now, and the CFA Institute has been one of the, the key sponsors. And now we're up to 420 schools, about 5,000 kids around the world in 12 different countries, 40 states in the United States. And it's just been so exciting to see the impact that you can have on the next generation teaching the correct fundamental investment principle. I can relate exactly to what you were just saying there about the game, because I remember back when I was in college, one of my courses, we played that game as well. And I remember being a little bit frustrated because I was a value investor back then still, like I am today, you know, through and through. And so I was analyzing these companies in a fundamental way. I was looking for undervalued stocks that were going to outperform over the next decade or 20 years. I planned on holding them indefinitely. So I didn't expect them to produce great returns over the next six weeks that that game was going to take place. And that was really hard for me to deal with emotionally or psychologically, right? When you see these kids in your class who are triple leveraging on ETFs and having great gains, it's tough to have your grade reduced because your investing returns are lower over a six-week period. That doesn't teach the way to invest long-term. So I love what you were saying there about the game. 
You mentioned value investing, but are there any other specific investment strategies that you're teaching to millennial investors? What is the best way for someone to get started investing? When we started Young Investor Society, we looked around and said, okay, how would we teach the correct principles and still make it exciting and engaging for a high school and potentially a middle school audience? We took a lot of the principles from the CFA Institute. So Young Investor Society is modeled after the CFA Institute. We do a, a stock pitch competition, which rewards the, the presentation and the analysis rather than the short-term performance. We actually have a certified young investment analyst designation that we offer. And so the principles that we teach are very in line with the CFA Institute, with their curriculum, ethics, accounting, economic cycles. We talk about what makes a good business and how to identify economic moats and companies. And then we take it all the way to the final stage of creating a discounted cash flow, creating a relative multiples analysis, and coming up with a target price of that company. And then I say the added thing that we really emphasize in Young Investor Society probably more than in your traditional CFA Institute curriculum is the personal finance aspect. So one of our pushes is that everyone is an investor. So whether you go into investing or not, everyone will have their investment portfolio to manage. And you know, it's still crazy to me that we don't teach personal finance in high school. I think this is one of the most valuable skills in life. And so we have you know, we have 12 modules that teach personal finance. And, and these are budgeting, saving, career preparation, and preparing for college. Then we have an incentive program called, we call it the dollar a day challenge. And basically, we challenge kids to start saving and investing a dollar a day through an automatic savings program. And they're eligible for a match. So if they invest, you know, up to $365 per year, they're matched by our corporate sponsors. And so one of the goals is don't just teach a concept, but create a habit and actually do it. And that's a way to incentivize young kids to start saving and investing is through that dollar a day matching program. That's some of the key points that we like to teach. I think what you're doing with the Young Investor Society is amazing. And I think you're doing a great service to the millennial and just younger generations and those people that are just getting started investing. Now, shifting to your day-to-day work as a portfolio manager of a billion-dollar fund focusing on small and mid-cap emerging market companies, what does an average day look like for you? Yeah, yeah. There's there's no average day in our industry. You know, fun thing about the investment industry is that no day is the same. That every day the markets are changing. Just a step back. So I, I manage money for APG Asset Management, and I'm the director of our emerging market small mid-cap portfolio. APG Asset Management is the largest pension fund manager for the country of the Netherlands. So we have permanent capital. We're able to take a long-term investment horizon. We also have a strong ESG overlay and integration into our process. So we're investing in good companies that are non-destructive to the world and we think can add significant value over time. So how is the day-to-day? Just so you have an idea, last year I visited 15 countries. So I'm on the road quite a bit. I, I met with over 200 different companies and management teams last year. And so a good chunk of my time is going to conferences, visiting companies and their headquarters, meeting with management, meeting with boards, and getting an update. And also talking about our engagement targets and our thoughts as, as shareholders and, and long-term partners with the companies. You know, the other half of the day-to-day is the deep analysis that we're doing internally at our team. So it's, you know, it's, it's all the usual things, building financial models, conference calls with companies, 
going through company earnings. I mean, we talked about Warren Buffett before. I mean, he talks about time horizon arbitrage. And I think one of the things that in the investment industry, which is a highly competitive industry, if you can take a longer term time horizon, you can maybe do different work than, than other investors. So we take our long term time horizon and that allows us to do deep in depth research on companies and build a high conviction portfolio. For example, while many investors may do a week's worth of work on a company or an IPO and invest in that company, it will take us, you know, three to four months of channel checks, talking to competitors, interviewing employees, interviewing boards, you know, building detailed financial models where we would do that investment. So there's a lot of analytical work. And then we're able to think big picture about trends as well. So we're able to think, you know, for example, I presented at at uh, the Guru Focus Value Investor Conference last year, and um, in Omaha, Nebraska, around uh, the Berkshire Hathaway event, and um, I presented our our network effect scorecard that we had created, and and basically made the point that during Buffett's time, early his thirty years, during that period, during the first from 1950 to 2000, of the top performing 20 companies, and and Jeremy Siegel makes this point in his books as well, are healthcare and consumer branded companies. And so during that period, it was all about identifying really the brand moat around businesses. And during these past 15 years, seven out of the top 10 performing stocks have been network effect moats or technology or internet companies, the Amazons, the Facebooks of the world. And so how do we analyze these businesses and feel comfortable with them? Now, for example, we created a network effect scorecard based off of Andreessen Horowitz's 16 points to, to value a network effect. You know, these are some of the things that we'll do that, that because we have a long-term time horizon, we're able to step back and really do deep analytical thematic work within our investment fund. And then the other time is, is on the road meeting companies, which is, which is honestly my favorite part is just meeting the talented managements from all over the world. So when you're meeting all of this talented management, when you're traveling, you're doing all this analysis, you're running the models, and you're talking, even talking to the employees, what makes for an interesting opportunity for you in a company in an emerging market? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, and maybe I, can, maybe I can talk about it through an example. But you know, in general, we're looking for four things, and we can call them the four Ms. We're looking for moat, market, management, and margin of safety. So so moat would be a company's competitive advantage. Market would be the growth opportunity ahead for this business to reinvest those cash flows. Management would be the ethos of the company and, and the management and the culture and also the owners. And then margin of safety would be the price that we're paying or the discount to intrinsic value that we see. So maybe teach this through an example. Nice Information Services is a company in Korea that we invested in. We currently own above 5% of the shares outstanding in the company. So public that, that we're owners of this company. You know, Nice Information Services, for the listeners that don't know, is, is the largest consumer personal credit bureau in Korea. So similar to an Equifax or a TransUnion, they have 75% market share in Korea, giving personal credit scores and, and, and accumulating the data and then selling that to the banks. We know from developed markets that these are fantastic businesses. They generate cash. They have a wide moat around them. There's continued growth opportunities through the monetization of that data. These are high return on capital businesses. And as a result, they tend to trade at you know, 20 times earnings, 30 times earnings. We found nice information services trading at 13 times you know, price to earnings ratio. 
So question is why? And so we went there and met with the CFO and and um, we were at the time, I mean, they had no broker coverage. At the time, we were the first international investors to, to meet them, bring a translator, speak to their CFO. But we knew the business model and we knew the power of that business model that they had created. And so, so we met with them. They were interested in engaging with us and learning. We had a couple ideas on how to improve investor disclosure, board structure, dividend policy. And they seemed receptive. And through follow-up conversations, channel checks, talking to different contacts, we developed sort of a high conviction that this was this was a well-run, great business. And so in nice information services case, you had you had a wide moat, 75% market share, dominance within Korea. You had a market, a high reinvestment potential and growth potential. You had a good management team that we liked and that we trusted and heard good things about. And then you had a margin of safety and that we were buying it at 13 times PE. Whereas, you know, the intrinsic value, I mean, really these businesses should trade at 25 times, 30 times earnings. So we invested and we invested pretty aggressively and, and bought over 5% of the shares outstanding. The, um, yeah, the positive outcome of that is that the company has made some of the positive steps in the right direction in terms of investment disclosure, board structure, increased their dividend policy. And um, as a result, the stock, you know, trades at 22 times price to earnings ratio now has continued to grow. And- it has generated phenomenal returns for us. This is an example of meeting all four of the four M's and having you know good investment opportunity for us. How are you going about finding these companies? How are they even getting on your radar? Yeah, so there's lots of different ways to find companies, um, and we teach this in in Young Investor Society as well. So the traditional way is screens. You can go on Google Screen or Yahoo Finance, or you know we do most of our screens through Bloomberg, and you can look for in nice. Info's case, you could look for return on equity above 20%, growth above 10%, and price to earnings ratio below 15 times. And nice info would have popped up. I'd say the other more powerful way of finding investment ideas is following the business models that you like. So, you know, one of the adages we use is fish where the fish are, find the pond where the fish are. And um, what that means is when you find a business model that's powerful that you understand that's in your circle of competence and find those business models around the world. So in in Nice Info's case, it was a case of knowing Experian, knowing that this is a fantastic business model, and then going out and saying, okay, who are the leading personal credit bureaus in all of our different markets that we're investing in? And who is it in India? Who is it in South Africa? Who is it in Korea? And in this case, you know, Nice Info was was that leader within Korea, and that's that's a way that we find a lot of ideas, our ideas in emerging markets. You could say that emerging markets are five to ten years behind developed markets, and so just just know the playbook of what works in developed markets, and then go find those winners within emerging markets, whether it be online search, whether it be logistics, whether it be in this case, you know, personal credit bureau. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. 
While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. When it comes to actually investing in these companies or even finding these companies, I know you're based in Hong Kong. Are you specifically looking for companies listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange or maybe even their local stock exchange? Or are you specifically looking for emerging market type companies that are trading in the US? Yeah, so we're, we're registered in locally in all the emerging markets that we invest in, which is 18 different countries. We don't necessarily have a preference whether we buy a Chinese company listed in the US as an ADR like, like Alibaba, or whether we buy a Chinese company that's listed at Hong Kong like Tencent. We don't necessarily have a preference. So, so we're registered locally in all the different countries. And the reason is, and you know, we can talk about this later, why emerging markets are, are underinvested. But it does take time for the broker to register in, in the local markets that you may be interested in, in purchasing. But that's where the liquidity is in the shares for most of the companies. And that's where you have a lot more options. So, you know, India, for example, has 5,000 listed companies listed on Indian stock exchanges, whereas they only have a handful of companies listed in, in the US on the NASDAQ. And so if you want exposure to India, you need to register locally. Does it make more sense for an individual investor who has maybe a few thousand dollars that's looking to invest who might be able to actually access these foreign stock exchanges through a platform like Fidelity through their investment brokerage account? Does it make more sense for them to invest in the shares locally? Or does it make more sense for them to invest in the foreign stock exchange if they don't need all that necessarily that liquidity, right? They're not going out and buying 5% of the company like you guys might. They may just be buying a few shares or maybe even a hundred, couple hundred shares. So they don't necessarily need that liquidity. Which option might be best for them? Yeah. Well, so if it's dual listed, like, like Alibaba is now listed in the US and Hong Kong, then it would make more sense to buy it in the US if that's easier. I think the bigger question is, 
How do you get started investing in emerging markets? The advice that we give to our kids in Young Investor Society is when you're getting started, the majority of the funds should be within ETFs and index funds. And take a small amount and 10, 20% maybe and, and start learning about stocks and individual securities. But 80% should be in index funds and to get exposure to the market cycles and you know the countries. So emerging markets, for example, has EEM, which is an ETF. It has a number of different ETFs. It even has a small cap ETF, EEMS, which you can buy. And that will get you sort of your general exposure to, to emerging markets. And there's different you know, you can invest in emerging market tech. And I mean, the ETF buffet these days gives you, you know, good exposure without having to necessarily register in India or register in China and get exposure individually to these companies. But for those investors who are either investing professionally or personally and want individual exposure to emerging markets, that's where you would, you would invest more locally because that's where the options are. And that's where, you know, as investors, you want, you want the most opportunity to be able to find great risk reward opportunities. And so I think you want to open the universe to be able to get the full exposure there. How does the analysis of an emerging market company vary from how you would analyze a US based company? Yeah, that's a great question. And that, you know, so honestly, Robert, when I was starting out as an investor, I thought working for an emerging market fund would be completely different than working for. You know, what I had read in books, Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch and Howard Marks. The reality is that I learned almost from day one is that it's, it's the same principles. It's the same accounting. It's IFRS. It's the same principles that make the moat in a business and make the growth opportunity. Emerging markets would have additional complexity. So you would have foreign exchange risk where currencies will go up and down. You would have more political macro risk. And then you would just have the time that it takes to become familiar with you know, the consumers in India or the consumers in Brazil. And so that time takes additional research. But overall, the principles are the same. So let me give you another example. Autohome is, is, a, is a Chinese automotive internet portal, and it's a company that we invested in. And um, Autohome is is a similar business model to cars.com, car gurus in the US or carsales.com in Australia, autotrader.com in the UK. And for us, understanding Autohome was all about understanding the developed market peers. What makes Autotrader such a good business in the UK or carsales.com such a good business in Australia? And when, you know, when you do the research, it's, it's about the the traffic dominance. It's about the network effect that they created. It's about the relationship with dealers. And those factors are all the same for AutoHome as they are at carsales.com. So when we looked at AutoHome, we saw that they had 85% market share within search traffic and user time spent on car research in China. That is a powerful network effect, no matter what market you may be investing in. And we did a lot of research, like I talked about, a lot of extensive research. We interviewed more than a dozen dealers. And we basically asked them the question, how much are you paying for auto home of your marketing budget? And what percentage of the leads are they giving to you? And, and of these leads, how many of those are converting into car buyers? And what we found, and this was sort of our aha insight, is that auto home was charging, was taking anywhere from 5 to 7% of dealers' advertising budgets, but auto home was giving them 40% of their car leads. 
and the conversion ratio was higher in auto home than other portals. And so what we saw is that they were giving 40% of the value to dealers and only charging 5% of the price. And so that was the aha insight on auto home was that was that the value that they were creating was huge. They could double their prices and would still be the highest ROI to dealers. And that analysis is the same in China as it would be in Australia or the US. And so it's still that deep fundamental analytical research that gives you that conviction as an investor to find these 4M type of businesses with moats, margin of safety, good management, and then opportunity to grow. Despite emerging markets accounting for 85% of the world's population and 50% of global GDP, which is gross domestic product, only 12% of global market cap and less than 5% of global institutional investors' allocations are in emerging markets. Why aren't more investors investing in emerging markets? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I think we've been asking this question as emerging market investors for a while. And um, we have seen the trend of you know, slowly more investors allocating more and more to emerging markets. And so maybe it's 6 or 7% of, of investors' allocation today. But it's still much smaller than the GDP contribution. You know, I think there's a couple of reasons. Home country bias is very well known and talked about. And so we all have a bias to our own home countries. And if most of the allocators are based in the US, then most of the allocation will be from the US. I think there's also proximity bias. So not just home country, but countries close to you. So when I was in the US, emerging markets, there were a lot more Latin American companies coming through than Asian companies. UK tends to have a lot more you know, Eastern European companies coming through in London. And here in Asia, there's a lot more Chinese companies coming through Hong Kong every day where I'm based. And so you naturally will invest where which is closest to you, which you understand better. I think there's also the fundamental reason. So stepping back, you know, emerging markets had its boom years during 2003 to, let's say, 2013, where commodities were booming. I mean, China was really just accelerating their growth. And those were the golden years for emerging markets, where, where it was high growth. You saw strong, strong companies emerge. Since 2013, I mean, I think these past, you know, what is it, seven, eight years, you've seen developed markets, and especially the US, really start to emerge and, and grow well and fantastic companies coming through from the US. And you've seen, you've seen less growth coming from emerging markets. So yeah, I mean, to be fair, I mean, the adage is stocks follow earnings. And, and over the long run, I mean, emerging markets have to show stronger earnings growth to be able to show outperformance and, and gain investor confidence. But you know, if you look at the charts year to year of asset classes, it's highly volatile year to year which asset class will perform. You know, emerging markets tends to tends to bounce from the top performer one year to the bottom performer the next year. But where we are today is that emerging markets, depending on what valuation metric you look at, EM is trading at a twenty-five to forty percent discount to developed markets. So that would tell you the time in the cycle is probably looking favorable for emerging markets. You know, just as a PE ratio, S&P 500 is trading at nearly 23 times last 12 months price to earnings, whereas EM is 15 times. And that, that over 40% discount is near the historical high levels of discount. And so 
We don't do a lot of top down trying to speculate which asset class or which market will will perform better. But I think history would tell you that you know emerging markets are cheap relative to their developed market peers, and that you know they are still showing what we think is secular growth, rising innovation themes, and good long term prospects. So so we're pretty excited about emerging markets taking a long term view. As we start to talk about valuations. It's well known and well discussed that valuations in the US remain at or near all time highs. Do you expect more investors to search for better returns in markets that are more attractively priced, like, for example, emerging markets? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I think you need to see growth and stability coming back from emerging markets to attract investor flows. If you look at investor flows over the past six months, there have been more flows coming into emerging markets. And I think part of the reason is this valuation discrepancy that that the discounts were were at very high levels. You know, U.S. has been has been a great great bull market, but valuations do look expensive relative to historical averages. And I think when you have more and more investors saying, you know, I can buy an emerging market comparable company with higher growth or similar returns on equity and similar competitive advantage had a 40% discount to what I buy it in developed markets, then, then yeah, that, that looks interesting. I know you mentioned a few companies that you guys have been looking at, and I think that's super helpful. But just in general, high level, what markets or geographies are you currently seeing a lot of opportunities? I guess I'd preface this that our approach is very bottom up. And so it's we want to find high quality businesses. And I guess the key in emerging markets is that have pricing power. So when you have pricing power, you're able to price through perhaps a spike in inflation or currency devaluation or political risk because you have that pricing power within your business. So, so when we find high quality businesses with modes led by great management teams that have pricing power, we're happy to invest in almost any market that we find them. So we take a very bottom-up approach and we try not to be too speculative about trying to predict you know, what countries may, may perform better, what styles may perform better over the short period of time. You know, what I can tell you is what we look for is we look for countries that foster innovation, that have long-term structural growth stories. We like countries that have an emerging middle class because that, that spurs consumption and that, that spurs the business model use that, that we look to invest in, less commoditized countries, and then look at the, the rule of law, the governance standards, the regulatory standards. Those are all the key factors that, that we would look for. And then from the bottom-up perspective, it's just the numbers game where if China, if you have 5,000 listed companies in China and 4,000 listed companies in India, the chances of us being able to find four or five great companies is much higher than in you know Czech Republic, let's say, that may only have 40 companies listed of, of adequate liquidity for us. And so, so the numbers game naturally will point us to certain countries. So we're finding opportunities in China. We're finding a number of opportunities in India. We're finding a number of opportunities in Taiwan. We're finding opportunities in Brazil. And so we try not to do too much around our top down. It's really focused on business model, growth trajectory, and management teams. But there's certain countries that I think are fostering innovation, have venture capital funded businesses to push the rising new startups and new innovative businesses, and that have the regulatory framework to protect us as minority shareholders. 
from someone that's closer to the situation than we are here in the US, how has the trade wars impacted investing in China? It's increased uncertainty. It's decreased visibility. You have seen some manufacturing companies shift from China to Southeast Asia, whether it be Vietnam or Thailand or Malaysia. Tariffs have increased the cost of doing businesses for for many businesses. What it boils down to in the end is what I mentioned before, which is pricing power. So if your company is dominant within its sector, has pricing power to your end customers, is adding value to, to these customers, then you know pricing through a tariff increase is not as big of a deal as if you're a low margin exporter which is competing basically on price then you may lose significant business to the middle east you know our businesses tend to be more asset light businesses so tend to not be too impacted by having to move manufacturing but our manufacturing businesses we take a lot of time to understand the competitive advantage within that business and the pricing power It's amazing to see that 2019 exports from China were up 1% or 0.5%. So after all all of the headlines and noise and worries in the market, I think if you would have said anyone at the beginning of the year that exports in China would be up for the year, they wouldn't have believed you. And so that just kind of points to the fact that China has a lot of ways to hedge the trade risk. So they've been exporting a lot more to Southeast Asia, they've been selling more to Europe, and they companies strategically shift manufacturing to the US, or that it's headed to the US to Southeast Asia. And it's the same company, they just have plants in different areas. So the impact, I would say the actual impact on the ground has been less than the noise and the headlines have been for the trade wars. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, High interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable 
advanced and dynamically capable one yet, and redefine sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Small caps in emerging markets are often considered more risky of an asset class than others. So I'm curious why you personally have decided to specifically focus on blending these two risky asset classes in one strategy. Yeah, that's a great point. We look crazy from the outside investing in emerging markets and at the same time taking on the risky asset class of a small cap within emerging markets. You know, but I mean, Robert, the opposite is probably true, at least from my opinion, is that one of the ways to reduce risk is to increase your margin of safety and compete where others are not competing. So I would argue that the inefficiencies in the market in large cap US stocks are probably not as high as the inefficiencies that we find within emerging markets, small cap. So we're competing with a lot less institutional investors. The case of Nice Information Services, the companies are not known nearly as well. And we're able to go in and buy great companies at great prices and have that opportunity for long-term compounding. So I would say it actually reduces the risk of overpaying for stocks and competition versus other investors. You know, the other thing is we're we're excited about emerging markets. We're excited about the secular growth opportunity as you have a rising middle class within China and India and Brazil. We're excited about better regulation within these countries and we're excited about the long-term opportunities of business model creation within these countries. And so, you know, if EM is 5 or 10 years behind developed markets and if you have longer-term secular growth opportunities, the best place to invest is within the small cap universe. This has higher exposure to consumer sectors, to healthcare, to the type of businesses that we would invest in. The large caps tend to be dominated by energy companies, resource companies, large exporters of tech products. And so it's actually within small mid cap that we can find sort of the sweet spot of good businesses with secular growth. Then the third thing I would say is another way that you're able to reduce risk is to understand the management and understand the governance within the company. And when we're investing in small cap companies like Nice Info, which I talked about before, when we're taking meaningful stakes within the company, we are getting to know the management, the boards, the employees within the company. And so the access that we're able to have as investors is much more than within within you know investing in Google, for example. And so that access, the secular growth, and the opportunity to, to find inefficiencies in the market, we think are all areas that will reduce your risk investing in emerging market small cap while still giving excellent long-term returns. What specific things should an investor look out for when they're new to investing in emerging markets? Are there specific accounting differences that need to be highlighted or any potential oversights that people often make when they're just getting started investing in emerging markets? Yeah, that's a great question. 
you know, I think IFRS is, is pretty standard across the board now. So the accounting standards should be the same. But I think you would look to who is the auditor? What is the reputation of this family-owned business or this the shareholders, the owners of the business. I think the the bar is higher for due diligence of in governance, of political risk, of economic cycles within emerging markets. And then, you know, similar to what we talked about before is we all have proximity bias. And some of that is for a good reason, is that we understand the products that we're using and we understand the products that are closest to us that we have maybe our parents had had used as well. And so the bar is higher for learning about products, learning about cultures, learning about people, learning about governance. That being said, I mean, I think one of the key messages is the business models are the same. What creates a moat is the same. What creates a strong company culture, which is a lot of you know things we look at, is the same. And so we found incredible value by finding great businesses in developed markets and finding what makes great management and governance in developed markets, and then copy and paste that over to emerging markets and find these, these great businesses. So I would say the bar is higher, especially coming from maybe a US investor side, but don't let that scare you off because the opportunities are there, the inefficiencies are higher, and the principles that make a great investment are all the same in other markets as they are in the United States. James, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. With the strong bull market we've had here in the US, it makes it difficult to find great companies at a fair price. So it's great to learn more about investing in emerging markets and to know there are investing opportunities in other markets. Where can the audience go to learn more about you, the Young Investor Society, and anything else you may have going on? Yeah. Well, first off, Robert, it's been such a pleasure and great questions. And I really enjoyed the conversation and hope a few more millennial investors out there know about emerging markets and know about how we invest and, and also know about Young Investor Society. I'm on LinkedIn. So feel free to reach out through LinkedIn. And Young Investor Society, you can check out its yis.org. The uh, content is free, actually. So anyone can sign up on, on the YIS portal and, and go through our 60 lessons and our different modules. And, and I would open this up to any of your uh, audience that's interested in, in learning. Some of the lessons are taught by some of the best, best investors in our industry. And so feel free to reach out. I love. I have been blessed by great mentors in my career, and I strive to be a great mentor myself. So any of your audience that wants to connect, wants to reach out, wants to ask questions about EM Stocks or Young Investor Society, I am happy to answer any questions and, and be a mentor where I, where I can. That's very generous of James to offer his time. So if you're listening to the show today and you have questions or you just want to reach out to him, be sure to do that. Let him know that you heard him here on this episode of Millennial Investing and ask him your questions. Take advantage of that opportunity. And of course, as always, I'll be sure to put links to related resources that we've talked about in the episode, as well as some books that go over these types of topics in the show notes. So you guys can check that out below in your favorite podcast player, or you can also go to theinvestorspodcast.com and see the full show notes there as well. James, thanks so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. It's been an honor. Thanks, Robert. And now we're going into a new segment of the show that I'm excited to be adding. In this new segment, I'll be answering questions we receive from you all listening to the show. Today's question was asked by Matt Reynolds in our Facebook group. He asked, should I just automatically buy index funds every month and commit a minimal amount of time to investing? First off, I want to say that this is a great question. It's a little hard to answer because it's often specific to the person. 
but I'll give my opinion on the question and tell you about how I invest, then you can decide what works best for you. If you're not passionate about investing, you don't like researching and valuing individual companies, or you just don't like the risk that can be associated with individual stock picking, then automatically buying index funds every month is a great way to invest. This is a strategy known as dollar cost averaging, which just means you're investing a set dollar amount automatically, regularly, such as weekly, monthly, or quarterly, regardless of what the price of the security or stock is doing. If it's going up, you're still buying. If it's going down, you're still buying. The way that the math works out, you buy less when the price of the security is higher and you buy more when the price of the security is lower. With this strategy, you get great diversification. It takes little to no time on your part. If done right, it could be very low cost. And over the long term, you should receive returns equivalent to the market, which if you can just achieve the market's returns, that'll generally put you in the top 10% of all investors, including professional investors. So if you hear that and you decide that that fits your personality and the time you have available to devote to investing, then you can do very well by just automatically buying low-cost ETFs regularly and spending your time doing other things. If you're passionate about investing and love researching individual companies, then you may not want to be completely passive. If you have the time to spend on researching companies and you're generally okay with more risk, then picking individual stocks could be great for you. What's great is that they're not mutually exclusive, meaning that you don't have to pick just one or the other. For example, I invest about 50% of my stock portfolio passively using the dollar cost averaging strategy by just buying a low cost S&P 500 ETF using a fixed dollar amount every single week. I will probably continue to do that for the next 30 or 40 years. Then with the other 50% of my stock portfolio, I pick individual stocks. I am very passionate about stock investing. I love researching individual companies, learning about their business, valuing them, and then making an investment decision. I also enjoy investing using options. Without going into the weeds too much, I really enjoy selling options to profit off the premium you receive as an options seller. I'm not day trading or making any highly speculative trades. I'm generally pretty conservative with my option selling. It's just a way that I like to generate some cash flow and increase my returns. So Matt, and everyone listening to the show today, I can't say which of these choices is best for you. You have to think about your personality, your risk tolerance, your time that you have available, and whether or not you like researching companies. Then make the best decision for you. If you want to hear your question answered on a future episode, you can post your question in our Facebook group, and I'll be picking some of my favorite questions to answer here on the show. You can find the Facebook group by clicking the link in the show notes below, or by searching Millennial Investing on Facebook and looking for the show's graphic. And that's all I had for this week's episode. I'll be back again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.